Quick, come up with something funny to say. Hello? Yo. Bork. Oh, that's really cool. Somehow I think you're lying. Uh-huh. Oh, fail. Oh. Ah! Bad Philosophy, episode 56, recorded on January 18th, 2010. I miss D&D. Hello, everyone. Welcome in. One, two, Bad Philosophy, episode 56, upsetting the balance of reality one rabbit trail at a time since 2008. I am Stephen Torrance, and we're here with a couple of excellent guests on the show today. First, someone you know and love, and hopefully doesn't annoy you too much, Kevin Saunders, live from Oxford, Ohio. Kevin, how are hey you there, doing? Hi there, hi there, hi uh, I'm, there. I'm doing all right, but I'm not going to say it three times. <laughs> all right. And uh, second, we've got on the show today a, a last-minute guest. Uh, we were going to be joined by Sean Brackett from Colorado, but we've got another guy on the show here who's uh, thankfully taking some time away from his D&D preparation to join us. That's uh, Brian Mitchell. Welcome to the show. Glad to know I'm the last-minute guy. <laughs> hey, you know, you're, you're the dependable go-to man, right? Sure. Yeah. Uh, since 2008, that's a lot of upset reality. That's a lot of upset reality. We've we've been upsetting two years, or uh, you know, if you want to get technical, about a year and a quarter's worth of reality. And no, uh, I'm sorry, I don't know. August '08. Year and a quarter. I mean, that's almost a year and a half. If you do oh. August, September, August, yeah. September, October, November. Uh, December, but January. it's from August. You know, it's a lot it's of reality. At least a year and a third. Yeah, we started. <laughs> we started the show in August. Yeah, so you got uh, four months. Five, yeah, I guess that's almost a year and a half. That's, that's almost a year and a half. If, if yeah, you know, we count January, which we're halfway through. Yeah, yeah, I'd call that a year and a half. All right, so upsetting the balance of reality for a year and a half, um, doing a way better job of it than the uh, LHC. I'll say that. <coughs> oh. Well, hey, if it wasn't for time traveling birds, they would have been doing a lot better. I know those those baguettes are uh, are bare, aren't they? Well, anyways, inspired by quantum reality. Uh, we're actually not going to talk about the philosophy of a large hadron collider or the end of the world on bad philosophy. We're, but oh, we are going to sort of. Oh, of course. Next week we'll definitely do that. <laughs> but That'd be fun. this the world week ends. we've got to uh, we've got to see what kind of a world we've got behind us before we end it. So we're going to be talking about nostalgia and uh, everything retro and decay and progress and these sorts of you know backward looking ideas and very nice forced transition there Stephen. oh, yeah, oh. I was about to say that was a masterful segue i am i am the master of segues if there's anything that i've uh, i've learned any sort of skill i've developed on this show is the ability to go from one topic to a completely unrelated topic in the smoothest way possible even if it does come across a little force sometimes. <laughs> so nostalgia, uh, for those of y'all who aren't familiar with it, all two of you out there, uh, is, page. <laughs> yeah. uh, Kevin is apparently uh, editing the article on Wikipedia as we speak. Um, so I've got to see exactly what he's come up with here. But nostalgia in essence is, uh, it comes from, from the Greek, of course, and means roughly... Uh, homesickness it's uh nost which is home and then uh alg which is like pain so it's kind of a, a longing for uh the past longing for what came before longing for what's familiar and you know many of you all might be familiar with it sort of in the the context of remembering your childhood and 
you know, those good old days and the, you know, the golden years when things were, were fantastic and, and uh, you know, kids respected their elders and, and money was worth something and, and the Atari 2600 was the best gaming system in the world. But we're going to talk about it sort of in that context, but also in relation to uh, what, you know, the idea of retro, bringing things back, how uh, everything old is, can become new again. And we were going to sort of go a <laughs> philosophical route. Uh, it's kind of funny. I, I, I did, a, a, you know, just a Google search for philosophy and nostalgia and came up with this article uh, of a guy named uh, Dylan Trigg, who wrote a book named The Aesthetics of Decay, Nothingness, Nostalgia, and the Absence of Reason. And initially I was thinking, oh, great, we'll get a a nice professional philosopher perspective on this. But about halfway through through the article, it uh, became obvious that that Trigg is is very proud of being an academic and uh, likes to use large, obscure terms and patterns that are pretty much incomprehensible to anyone outside of his uh, realm of philosophy. So we're gonna we're not gonna talk about Dylan Trigg or his philosophy on the show today. Also, he's got that really annoying hairstyle that's like all gelled <laughs> and styled to look like it was just run out of bed. But you know, he took thirty minutes to work on it. Oh, precisely. Um, it almost I was almost uh, I almost thought that 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 couldn't be him when I first saw the picture. I was like, that <laughs> philosophers never look that good or bad. <laughs> that style is what I would say. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so, anyways, Kevin, what what exactly did you change here? I'm not seeing any. Uh, any um, differences. I only did minor things. I did I, I I didn't want it to get flagged immediately, mm-hmm. so I changed um, longing to yearning, and a couple other a couple other synonymous words. Okay. Um, nothing too shattering. Nothing too earth shattering. You know, they might I was actually leave them. Stephen, but I didn't. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that would have gotten flagged immediately. Well, that's what that was just it. It's like I didn't want to get immediately flagged. Mm-hmm. So, um, well, anyways, Kevin, you you had some opening comments on this, I know. So uh, go ahead and, and tell us just your your opinions on nostalgia. First off, here. Um, well, it's one of the things that I've I've kind of been thinking about nostalgia a lot recently, which is odd that I think about nostalgia generally. Mm-hmm. Just you think nostalgically, um, but I've I've kind of been just questioning, you know, my own worldviews and how I come about them and things like that. And so I go back to, you know, what I experienced in the past. And, you know, I, I think a lot of kind of where I am academically, socially, um, is, is influenced by, you know, those better days, if you will. Um, when I was younger, I don't remember exactly how old I was, <laughs> uh, a book called Friendle came out. Uh, F-R-I-E-N-D-L-E, and I'll Google the, yeah, Frendel. Andrew Clements wrote Frendel. Um, fantastic book, uh, 2.5 million copies. It's a, it's a young adult novel, um, which another people way of saying, you know, it's written for kids, although I don't think that's a limiting thing necessarily for it. But it's about a kid who basically reinvents a new word for the word pen, you know, the writing implement. And instead of calling it a pen, he calls it a friendle. And, you know, the whole thing takes on a life of its own, and it just sort of goes all over the place, starting with his school and then nationally. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, the point was that the definition didn't change, but what we called it did. 
and pen was still a perfectly good word, but friendle was a new word, and that was something that definitely, you know, got me questioning the meaning of words and, yeah. and how meaning is very assigned, which is something I'm very interested in right now. You know, structuralist thinkings, and then um, one of my favorite TV shows growing up was. Clarissa explains it all with Melissa Joan Hart, uh, who just had a movie called Nine Dead come out. So, you know, check that out. Thumbs up for Slurpees. I haven't seen it, but, you know, maybe. Anyway, Melissa Joan Hart, Clarissa explains it all, um, was a very meta show. I mean, she turned and talked to the audience, and, you know, it was, it was a very intelligent show for its target demographic of, you know, 13-year-olds, 12-year-olds. Yeah. Um, which I was actually younger than that when I started watching the show. But... You know, the show had no problem breaking the fourth wall um, and and not necessarily intentionally questioning what TV was all supposed to be about. You know, what is the real purpose of this and what it, why, what makes it a, a sitcom and how is it different? And it certainly wasn't the first show to do that. But that's something that, you know, the meta-theatrical nature of it, again, influenced me rather dramatically in my life. And I also celebrate, you know, t National Time Travel Day every time we go back an hour um, which was given to me from The Adventures of Pete and Pete, which was an extremely surreal show, also on Nickelodeon. Um, that, I was about that, to say, I, have, I did watch Close to Explains It All a little, but I never actually caught Pete and Pete. Huh. Um, oh, Pete and Pete was great. I got the first two seasons on DVD, which is all they released, and the first season of Close to Explains It All on DVD, which, again, is all they released because of that. Um but, I mean, th th those are just some examples. And I, I keep thinking of other things that, you know, sort of, you know, hit, m hit my brain. That You know, this had an effect on me a long time ago, and I'm still following up on it. Um, which isn't necessarily, you know, yearning for the past, or, you know, longing for better days, or being homesick. But it's more it's, of a, like a recognition of something that, that built you to, to who you are yeah, today. And, yeah. you know, it's, it's amazing... You know how powerful those those formative moments were for me. You know, yeah. sitting in front of the TV with my you know parents, family, whatever. Well, and, I, I, I as long as we're relaying like stories of nostalgia, I I've definitely gone through in in the past couple of months actually uh, that same sort of a, a looking back and seeing what formed me into into what I am today. And uh, for me, it's the Magic School Bus, Reading Rainbow, uh, DOS games on our old 486 computer. Uh, it was soccer and and friends that I had back then, and and art and Star Wars and Star Trek, and uh, for me, just looking back at all the the things that I did, what struck me the most, I guess, was how short of a time it all happened over. Um, I, I I know it's you know biologically we tend to uh, experience time a lot slower as as children, just because there is so much newness and our brain is assimilating all this these new things. And so we sort of had that, that protracted view of the past. And I think with that protraction comes a sort of um, idealization as well. Like I, I tend to uh, remember things like the Magic School Bus and Reading Rainbow being a lot better than they probably are. Uh, you know, going back and watching them now, the, uh, the Magic School Bus... I, I see things in it that I didn't see then, like racial stereotypes and and uh, you know obvious flagrant disregard for safety on the part of Miss Frizzle and. Uh, but it was magic, so it was okay. Right, yeah, I guess. It's the frizz. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I can sort of 
I can sort of sympathize with Arnold now. You know, going uh, back then, I was sort of like, oh, 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 Arnold. You know, he's just he's just a scaredy pants. And now I'm like, you know, I think I would be kind of freaked out in that situation too. <laughs> I mean, if if my teacher was that crazy and our our school bus transformed and, and took us inside like people's bodies and out into <laughs> outer space and stuff like that i, I think i'd be a little frazzled uh, yeah as well, i can see but. that but you know that being said you know i i still watch you know the two shows i mentioned and have just recently and they held up surprisingly well hmm. uh without a lot of of the degradation that and the decay that you almost expect from that um so I think maybe the first uh, thing we can identify philosophically is there's there's definitely I guess psychologically is there's definitely something going on in the brain that that causes us to distort our memories of the past in certain ways uh, to to definitely to idealize certain parts of the past uh, forget the bad parts if you will and whenever we do kind of recall bring up memories of uh, things that happened way back we tend to to just gloss over everything and make it sort of this this packaged, um, perfect uh, mixture of memories. So are we in a sense, and I know when um, psychologists talk about nostalgia a lot, it's often mentioned in, in relation to self-deception, to irrationality, um, almost as in, in ex- extreme forms as sort of a disease of, uh, you know, irrationally, uh, longing for the past or, or, you know, wanting to be back then rather than right now. Uh, well, you like the, the one major couple major things. If you ask someone to remember the past, a couple major things that will usually come up is it was simpler. Mm-hmm. Um, it was um, probably, at least in the case of the United States, things were cheaper. Um, <laughs> and, and uh, maybe a lot of other things that, may have added up to the final conclusion people usually tend to come up with is it was better. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it could be that as children, you don't look at, or as a young adult, you don't look at certain things that might be happening in a time period, or maybe things have really actually degraded over Mm -hmm. time. But I'm going to stick with my opinion that as a, as a younger person, Usually you don't look at things that are happening, and as you grow older, you tend to notice more and more things. So, that... so let's, let's kind of shift it a little bit and talk about maybe some, some more near-term nostalgia. So um, I would say after about 16, 17, we start, to, uh, we start to really notice more things, mature psychologically and such. I don't think any of us here are quite as old enough to, to, to be able to look back over like a 15-year period of that sort of increased observance, uh, mindfulness of the word, world, if you will, uh, and say that there's maybe a difference between um, childhood nostalgia, you know, looking back to your childhood, and just looking back, you know, five or ten years in your life, in your adult life. Um, and, that, and I'm trying to, to sort of bring up things from my own memory, but my memories of high school are almost as idealized in many cases as my memories of childhood. Now, that could be, on the one hand, I, I haven't mentally matured sufficiently yet, but on the other hand, I, I would like to believe that it's uh, maybe sort of indicative that we, we never really mature in our, in our view of the past, that we always sort of tend to idealize even, even the past you know, two or three years in our lives. Uh, what, do y'all, what do y'all think of that? What's your opinion on that? Kevin? Well, I think there's a lot of a lot of indication, and there's certainly some philosophical studies in this regard, 
um, to say that uh, memory, just on the whole, is not retained but created. And so because of that, you know, all memories are recreations, keyword being their creation of, of what we remember. I can remember what happened, you know, three minutes ago, I think, more or less. If not, I can go listen to the tape. <laughs> yeah. But um, so, so, so you have that, but you recall things over and over again, and that's sort of what brings things into long-term memory. And so there's the question of whether or not you're remembering something or you're remembering your memory of it. Hmm. And that 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 separation is making a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy. And I actually, believe it or not, did a thought experiment with this with with myself, or I think I did. I remember it, whether or not it's accurate or not. Um, many years ago, I was in eighth grade, and I I got started thinking about this. It was somewhere between eighth and ninth grade, mm-hmm. and it was I had this idea of you know, of just of just how memory works, and so. I was laying on a bed. I was at a camp um, at Southern Methodist University. I was laying in my bed in the dorm room, staring up at the the pegboard that was above my bed. And I remember this all very distinctly, and I'll, I'll explain why here in just a second. Because you, because I, I, I sat there and I said, I'm going to remember this moment. And not only that, I'm going to remember remembering this moment. Hmm. And so I said, I said that. And then about three and a half, four weeks later, I was back home. And I was laying on my couch in much the same position. And this is sort of what brought the memory back to me. And I now remember remembering that moment. In addition to remembering that moment. Because on the ca- I remember this couch moment just as dis- distinctly. Hmm. And so it was a thing where I've, I've got these two moments. None of the, neither of which I, can, I know were 100% accurate. But I've managed to both remember the thing happening and then remembering what I remembered. And hmm. both of those moments have stuck with me since, you know, I'm in the 17th grade now, so almost, you know, nine years. Yeah. Well, that's, that's an, interesting, uh, an interesting thought experiment, Kevin. And it, and it sort of gets at this, this idea of, uh, you know, meta-memory and, and remembering memories and remembering remembering and such. Uh, bonjour in the uh, chat room is going sort of a different direction with it. Uh, he brought up the, uh, the improv game where you, I think it's called Telephone, where you tell one person, you know, whisper a message in their ear, a sentence or a story or something. And then it's up to them to relay that to the next person and the next person. And you go around in a circle, eventually coming back to the originator. And often, the, you know, through this process of, of uh, communication from one to the other, the story gets very distorted. Uh, it gets even more distorted if you go between description and uh, drawing. So you alternate. One person draws the story, the next person describes it. You've played Telephone Pictionary, haven't you? Exactly. And, uh, uh, and it I think sort what of he described more hand, uh, more is telephone charades. A telephone charades, yeah. yeah. Um, I would say that that that's. I mean, it's an extremely interesting game, um, but it it sort of it, it relates more to the idea of, of fallibilism in memory, uh, and that's that's sort of more of an epistemological question than than I guess what we're trying to get at is this idea of of whether of our, our phenomenology, you know, how we experience the past through memory, um, how our previous experiences relate to our, our present experiences and kind of what that, what that does for our own uh, thought processes. I kind of want to turn the discussion a little more to the idea of 
progress. And I know you kind of mentioned this earlier, Brian, um, that maybe we remember the past being simpler, better, cutting out the bad parts, we just sort of remember the the ideal perfection that apparently existed. Um, it could also be you only remember what you wish to remember. Right. So if, if you know certain bad things happen in your life, unless they have left a very distinct mark on you as a person, you tend probably not to forget to remember them. Mm-hmm. And that's that's just a human thing, you know. We we cut out the bad parts because they're painful. Um, but do we do we recall the the good parts of the past? In and this is actually something that Triggs talks about in his book. I was able to garner that from the uh, bundle of obscurity that was the the article. But he <laughs> he mentioned the idea of of measuring progress through. Um, through ruins, through decays, through uh, through remembering the past. So when we see when we see things breaking down over time, when we see you know society changing in certain ways, uh, you know kids getting you know more uh, disrespectful or you know skirts, their pants all skirts on the ground. getting shorter, you know pants getting long, yeah, that sort of thing. We sort of see it as a sign of of progress. Um, and it's it's funny that we we like to see that as a degradation of society, whereas things like getting iPhones and getting faster and faster computers we see as, as progress. And we don't really miss the days when, you know, we didn't have laundry machines. <laughs> <laughs> Some people do. They're weird. And they yeah. blog about it. Which is funny. Because they blog about not having you know, or doing laundry by hand and, mm. and you know, being in this world this this Luddite esque sort of world using the magic of the internet. Yes. <laughs> so it is, I, I don't know, what do y'all think of the, the irrationality of nostalgia? Do you think there's, there's something contradictory going on there? Oh, certainly. I mean, we, we want things to be better, and it's a lot easier to imagine a better past than it is a better future, because mm. the future is very uncertain and wishy-washy, whereas if I remember something, then it happened. And if I remember it a certain way, then it happened that way, because I remember it. And, and we ascribe a lot of power to memory, with, with even without the, you know, this idea of you know, the telephone pictionary memory game. Yeah. And so we ascribe that if, if I remember it being good, then it was good, and so things were better then. But it's really, it's a lot easier to remember things, it's, it's just as easy to remember things being bad and the other ways, and not necessarily remember, but you know, you look at renaissance fairs. I love renaissance fairs. They're mm-hmm. fun. You know, dress up in costumes, throw things, hit things with a mace, whatever. <laughs> but I, I am, in no way do I believe that things were better in, you know, the 1500s or the mm-hmm. 16th, 17th century because, you know, the average lifespan was 40 years old back then, which means I would be a late middle-aged man right now. And, and, and there were no uh, porta-potties either. No porta-potties, no. I mean, there, was, there were lots of problems with the actual Middle Ages. Yeah. Um, sure, we got some good literature out of them, arguably, and other things that, that good came out of that, but equally, you know, you look back and the plague... We don't have the plague anymore in this first world country we live in. Yeah. I'm okay with that. The closest thing we have is the Heine flu, which got overblown and didn't actually kill any more people than the regular flu. Right. And it's it's terrible that people died from anything. You know, we still haven't beaten that. But the fact that that's, that's our big scary concern is that something like a plague may come back. We don't want that to happen. And, and it's not likely going to happen. But that doesn't mean... 
living in the past was better. Exactly. Well, and I, I'm glad you touched on that, Kevin. The, we have an interesting obsession as humans with like uh, with with bringing back certain parts of the past. In in our nostalgia, we go and we you know, hey, that that Renaissance time that was pretty cool. I think we're gonna we're gonna take just the good parts and like recreate that now so people can you know experience something different and interesting. Um, and it's it's definitely most prominent in this idea of retro technology and uh, furniture and ideas and art and such. Um, it, it seems to me that, that um, most trends sort of go through a, a few phases. First off, there's, you know, there's the initial release when it's, it's very popular and it's like the new thing and it's cool to have it. And the honeymoon phase. Exactly. And the, the next phase is sort of, you know, better stuff comes out and it, it drops off a little. People get less interested in it. Um, then the next phase is it's, it's junk, you know, it, and, and this usually happens about 10 years or so after the release. And then about 20 years after the thing first came out, if it was well loved by enough people in the past, it becomes retro and cool again. And we're starting to see this happen now with, uh, like Brian, for instance, you have, uh, I won't call it an obsession, but, but definitely a, an extreme interest in... An interest. Yeah. <laughs> in uh, chiptune music, yeah. Yeah, so uh, explain it is, a little bit about that. Uh, it is rather a favorite music genre of mine. It's a variety of techno that... Um, Essentially, people take the old sound chips from like the Atari 2600, usually the NES for the Game Boy Color, and they essentially just use it to write original music. And occasionally you find stuff that is actually written for the hardware, but usually it's just you take something that is a square wave, so like you get the beep or boop sound, whatever. Precisely. And so, and then you just take that and write, write a melody, write a bass line, right? And you get the, like, the percussion that's just static, mm-hmm. and whatever, and just you write techno out of it. And it's something that I really like a lot. And actually, you say, um, like, the resurgence of retro and whatever happening to um, kind of the old chiptune, old video game stuffs. I've noticed it a lot in, the, say, the uh, indie gaming stuff. You see a lot of people trying to replicate the old-fashioned uh, video games. I mean, Mega Man 9 came out on WiiWare. Mm-hmm. Downloadable for the Wii looks exactly like... Mega Man 8 for the NES. Different bosses, different weapons, whatever. But it's just people replicating the past because it works. Because enough people are interested in something like that that it'll sell. So maybe, and and almost there's something... I guess endearing about the the simplicity of it. Um, you know, eight bit sound is for for most folks uh, is kind of grating. You know, it's not there's not a lot of quality there. The the bit rates very low, um, very simple sounds. But for others like yourself, that low quality is a, a type of quality. Uh, it's it's a different aesthetic, I guess, a value than. Uh, you know, modern uh, 44 kilohertz CD quality music. Um, and I think, you know, that, I don't know how that relates to nostalgia exactly, but it's a, it's a very interesting phenomenon that we, we sort of like old, partially uh, obsolete 
type technologies after a certain period of time. And I, and I like oh. what, just before you go on, Kevin, what someone said okay. in the chat room, um, the time frame that that, you know, before something gets to that point of retro does vary. Um, certainly, we still see a lot of interest in uh, cars from the 1960s and 70s, you know, particular muscle cars. And that's, you know, 30, 40 years later here. Um, the time frame is variable for sure, but there's there's still that that kind of, it's really popular, it's not so popular, and then it becomes retro. Yeah. Uh, there's there's certainly some of that, because but um, I, I think just in, in the case of, you know, Brian's chiptune sort of stuff, I'm intrigued by it. I don't particularly like to listen to it, although I've got some chiptune tracks. I think I downloaded the, the chiptunes Weezer album that was kind of making the rounds a while ago. Hmm. But um, it's an incredible instance of constrained creativity, which I'm a huge fan of. Um, which I don't know that we want to take a whole, you know, the rest of this episode to talk about, but it's a very interesting topic nonetheless. Um, but I think it's interesting, and I, I think very little to back this up that you know what is retro is always shifting forward because if you, if you look in the 1970s, you know, a, a decade we're almost nostalgic for, you know, is, is somewhat retro, is sort of, you know, kind of cool to think about, mm-hmm. disco parties, that sort of stuff. Um, you know, that was the same decade that Greece got released, which was very much this sort of retro 50s sort of thing mm. that, you know, the 50s and in my mind, because I don't remember the 70s or the 50s, Greece is very much a representation of how I view the 50s, which was created in the 70s. I'm, I remember, or I, I have in my mind, a retro version of it rather than an actual example. I, I don't know Leave it to Beaver, which is not a very good, not a, a representative example either, no. <laughs> but it's still a thing where I, I don't know that as well as I know Greece. You know, Greece is the word, have you heard? And so I know these things. Um, so I'm, I'm curious, you know, if, if we'll kind of keep seeing these kind of jumps in nostalgia. Uh, you know, 30, 40 years from now, we're thinking back to the dot-com bubble where people are, are dressing up like Cory Doctorow in goggles and capes. And I can't oh believe I just made an XKCD reference. Yeah. But I did, <laughs> and it amuses me because that was back when it was good or better. <laughs> yeah, better. And I, I, I know, I, and I, I've often thought about how, you know, what things from, from this current era will become retro and um you know whether people will look back at you know the simpler days of when when facebook was uh you know just for for college students i think folks are already sort of doing that but um you know the 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 glory days of friendster and uh you know when when you could get groceries online and things like that um or, or you know even stuff right now will someday twitter uh, be retro this this idea of... about, about 10 years after twitter crashes from not being able to make any money yeah. probably um I don't, I don't remember friendster particularly but i do remember and i am nostalgic for the days when facebook was you know college only invites mm-hmm. so that's and that was four years ago four yeah. or five years ago <laughs> um, and and i am nostalgic for that to some extent um because one of the best things about facebook and it's an original in its original intent was that I could enter my schedule and it would cross-reference me to everybody in my classes. Yes. And so I could click on my class and see the other people on Facebook who had listed that class and say, you know, hey, do you have some? Do you have a notes? Or should we get a study group together? Which was, believe it or not, Facebook's original intent. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was its almost sole purpose. So it's, it's weird that it's not that anymore. 
and that there's not a thing like that anymore. There's there's not really an option for that. There is, there are like social. ten. <laughs> now that it's well, gone to applications, there's not a there's not a dominant one. Right. Um, there's there's not a standard anymore. Um, but yeah, I mean that's that's an excellent example of of something from from Facebook's very recent past that I already feel kind of nostalgic about. Um, so I think you know maybe there are there are various levels of nostalgia for sure, and we can we can even look back um, not too far in the past and and wish that things were like that again. Um, so I, I moving on. Um, this idea well, actually actually I'd like to go back mm-hmm. a subject or two, and you mentioned. Like you're, you're already of... nostalgic for earlier parts of the show. But... <laughs> yeah, sure, whatever. Um, it's just, uh, you, you mentioned something a little about the idea of something that is considered retro mm-hmm. moving forward a little. Well, it, it's still, you still people, still see people idolizing or idealizing a certain time period, and they just stick to representing that time period. You mm-hmm. still see people enjoying the 80s. And now the 90s can be something of a bit of nostalgia trip now that we're in the 10s or teens or whatever. We're we're almost two decades away, which I think is the minimum necessary distance for retro. Yeah, I agree. So I don't think we're quite to to be retro for the 90s, but we're getting closer. So, you know, my love for Curse Explains It All will be justified. I think we're already in the era of the 80s being retro, and we're, we're seeing this with uh, the movie um, Hot Tub Time Machine. <laughs> Which I'm excited about. Yes, I'm, I'm a little bit excited about it, too. Uh, it's about a, a series of, of guys who um, find a hot tub that takes them back to a ski resort in the 80s. And, you know, just the trailer alone had a bunch of retro references. Uh, you know, bright oh, wow. color, clothes, some guy with a what Walkman. What color is Michael Jackson? <laughs> Black. Oh, God. I mean, that was, which, you know, I didn't even realize. I'm I'm so freaking young, apparently. Mm-hmm. I don't remember a time when Michael Jackson was black. No. <laughs> um, no. Same here. So that's, when I discovered that he used to be black, it was a very strange moment for me. Mm-hmm. So. And I, and I definitely same. agree that, that nostalgia is generational. Different generations are going to have... Could be nostalgic for different things, um, but I, it's it's almost odd though. I've, I'm finding myself um, very recently getting into uh, being nostalgic for stuff that was released slightly before or almost at the time that I was born. So I've I've been collecting a lot of uh, very early Macintosh computers. Uh, we're talking like the original, uh, like the Mac SE, which came out in 1987, the uh, LC2s, which came out in the very late ni- 80s, early 90s, and you know things that are that were back there that maybe I didn't experience, but that are sort of part of my uh, generation's past. You know. Well, I mean. Just to kind of re-reference my chiptune thing in the NES, mm-hmm. the NES is older than I am. Right. Oh, frack. That's weird. <laughs> yeah. I forget how young you are, Brian. And that's coming from you who just explained how young I am. <laughs> so it's just, it's just weird that, like, gaming itself as a household thing is older than I am, mm-hmm. which, just realizing this right now, I think is weird. But... Yeah, that I mean, it's just a little odd to see how far it's come and how short a time. See, and that's I, I think that's almost a distinct type of nostalgia because you're not you're not really looking back at your own past. You're looking back past your own past. You know, 
before you were even born to maybe something that other people consider uh, or have nostalgia for or consider retro. Um, you know, what is that? What, do we call that nostalgia? I mean, that's not really... It's almost wanting something that you never had in the first place. I mean, it's, it's sort of a created nostalgia, which I don't know if, if that's quite right, but it's, it's, there's definitely something to that. Um, sort of harking, harking back to stuff that, you know, it's almost like you just missed it. Yeah. And I know, I know you're an input, Stephen, you know, going mm-hmm. back to Strength's Quest, and so the fact that you just almost were there for this sort of stuff, and I, you probably have a definite desire to go back and, and get that experience because you just missed out on it. Well, it, you know, it, whereas... Here's my mm-hmm. theory on it. I, I think it's kind of this, this notion of everything old is new again, or certain things old are new again. Because I, I, was, I never experienced them before, it's almost like I'm experiencing them for the first time. So once you, you know, if you go far enough into the past, it's almost like you're, you're experiencing new things in a similar fashion to experiencing the present, you know, when new products come out. Um, granted, they already exist, but because you haven't experienced them personally, it's it's new, so you can you can get newness in both directions in, in time. So I, I I wouldn't even call it nostalgia at that point. I think it's you're right. It's input. It's it's wanting something new, even though it's technically old. <laughs> I mean, how do you introduce this idea of retro to people who are even younger than I am and haven't even had a chance to experience, say, the Super Nintendo? Right, right. Or mm-hmm. even the Nintendo sixty four, the era of the beginning of three D. People look at 2D stuff and say, what is this? <laughs> Sean asked an interesting question in, in chat uh, of why experiencing something for the first time is so important, uh, which I'd like to hear you answer, Stephen, just since you're kind of... Because I'm an input? This is your thing. <laughs> well, I'm an input, too, but you're yeah. the one who, who brought it up, so I'm going to take over host roles and ask you a question. Oh, my. This is, this is new. I don't, I don't know how I'm going to respond. Um <laughs> Why is experiencing something new so important? I, I guess for me, it draws probably more from my achiever or a combination of my achiever input um, because it's there's a thrill to it, I think, um, of feeling like... Because, and I think it harkens back to childhood, too. Um, everything was new when we were kids. You know, that constant... Uh, you know, going outside and seeing trees or, or water, you know, going to canyons, stuff stuff that we take for granted now was all new. And it might be a form of nostalgia because we, we don't miss necessarily anything specific, but we miss having new experiences. And so for me, going back and, and finding these things that I've, I've never experienced before, uh, even though they already exist, they're new to me. And it kind of gives me that feeling like I had when I was a kid of, of finding out something for the first time, you know, giving my brain something new. Um, so yeah, I, I think it relates to nostalgia in a very close way. Well, um, I'd just like to say the first time you experience something is usually the, the, the most amount of learning that you get, even though you might have the experience of learning something new every day about it, it's still when you first experience something or first see something, that, that's when you seem to find everything about it. Mm-hmm. And you look at this and you say, okay, this does this and this means this. And you look at that and think about that too. And so it's just it, the experience of the first time is just, like you've said, the moment of learning and the moment of first impressions as I someone think it's in chat. when perception is the most intense. 
um, definitely when you first see something, you see it. You know, you're not because I think we've we've identified this psychologically. Most of what we see when we perceive is just identifying a, something. There's a philosophical and, aspect here, but sorry, I didn't yeah. interrupt you. Keep well, going. Seeing something and then pulling up a memory of that thing. So, like you said, Kevin, remembering a memory. So, you know, you kind of already have, you see it for the first time and you build a construction of it and you go, this is a, this is a mouse. And then whenever you see one, you kind of need just a visual cue, but then your brain goes, oh, mouse perception, you know, and just puts all that up there. And it doesn't really do the work of looking at the object for what it is, which is why, you know, we have all these these gaffes, right, when we see stuff that, that we see every day, but then you put like a little slight tweak on it, we tend to just completely ignore it. Um, I know that, that many studies have been done to that effect. But yeah, Kevin, what were you going to say? Um, well, the, the something interesting about this that I, I actually can relate to a philosopher, I know it's frightening, um, but Hegel's idea of, you know, thesis, antithesis, synthesis, mm-hmm. um, basically you have an idea, something interacts with that idea um, that, that contradicts it or, or is counter to it, and then you come away with a new idea. And when you're young and you've had fewer of these experiences, the synthesis that eventually comes out of these, out of any new experience, is a much bigger change of everything. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, you know, as you get later on, you know, you've had more experiences, the changes get perceptively smaller. Um, less and less drastic. Yeah. They're less and less drastic. They're, they're minor tweaks. They're little things. You know, okay, this is just a little bit different. Rarely do we have, you know, big earth-shattering things like the moment you first get on an elevator, mm-hmm. the doors close, 30 seconds later, the doors open, and the world is completely different. <laughs> that we don't we don't get those experiences anymore because we've had them explained and we know what's going on so it's it's interesting and i i think that may be um part of nostalgia is we miss those big world changing events exactly and so we we i guess are remembering the experience and and not necessarily of a particular thing but seeing a particular thing for the first time no, and, and that's manifest, I think, a lot of times in remembering the things that were most intense to us when we first saw them. Uh, you know, my, my memories of, of playing on the PlayStation, certain games that just really made an impression on me. I tend to go to those more than, you know, I don't even remember the first time I was on an elevator. It was probably too young for me to remember it well, but, um, you know, a lot of the mundane firsts kind of drop lower and lower, and the, the really cool ones tend to come up when we look back at the past. Um, Bonjour, who, who's managed to ask a number of good questions on this episode, so mm-hmm. thanks for that, um, asks about what about first-time experiences that happen later in life, but you've had others try to tell you what it's like. How much do those comments or on, a, on the experience influence what your experience is like? Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a very good question, and I, I would like to answer it personally and then ask Stephen and Brian as well. But the example I have is definitely a case of movie hype. Hmm. Um, whereas I was having this discussion earlier today with someone about The Hangover, uh, which just won the Golden Globe yesterday for Best Comedy Musical, Comedy Slash Musical, which is weird to put those two together, another rant for another day. Anyway, um, I saw it relatively early on. I thought it was fantastic. And so I, I very quickly became part of the hype machine, so I was telling people about it and how great it was. Um because I, I had a really good experience with it, because I went into it rather blindly. Mm-hmm. Didn't really know what to expect. So when someone else comes into it, the person I was having this conversation with, they come to it after that hype, 
and of having their expectations built up that the experience may or may not meet those expectations and thus lowered the experience hmm. of the thing. So certainly expectation has a huge part of that, and it can be positive or negative. If it's not you know, all this hype you've built up to, then it, your, your actual experience might be lower. Um, there's, there's a couple movie reviewers that I read who make it a point to try and read as little about it, read as little of the hype um, about movies and stuff beforehand, so they go into it with that clean slate, mm. without any baggage, you know, other sort of stuff. So, that's me. So, you know, Stephen, what do you, what do you take away from this? You know, how, how expectations or, you know, explanations influence first experience? Yeah, I, I would definitely say that... Um... It, it can make or break an experience, or it, complete, it can completely change the experience once you actually have it. Because um, for me personally, I, I think it happens most often with movies, but um, I think going to New York City was a really good example for me. Um, you know, seeing New York City in films and in pictures and, and hearing from other people who had visited it all my life, and then actually going there in uh, 2004, I think, uh, with my family, um, was very different. And I think, you know, if I, if I didn't know as much about New York City as I had, some of the things might have been more interesting. Like when we went, we didn't go to the Statue of Liberty because it's the Statue of Liberty. You know, you've, you've seen it in, in photographs and pictures and, and movies and everything to death. And, you know, you go there and it's, it's a statue on an island that looks exactly like you would expect it to. <laughs> um, but it was the smaller things that, that maybe I hadn't known as much about beforehand, like the specific kinds of restaurants in New York City or the, um, you know, the smells, the, the, the textures in Central Park, um, stuff like that that I think made a greater impression on me. Um, actually taking a taxi ride, the thing that struck me most was the the speed and that's something i don't think you get a, a real good impression of in movies of just how fast and reckless these these um cab cars <laughs> go through new york city <laughs> uh, did you get in the cash cab no i this was way before the cash cab was was even on the on the drawing board for discovery so uh, unfortunately not but i would have loved you know and i think that's a great example Folks who have seen the show, The Cash Cab, have a completely different experience when they actually happen upon the cab. Oh, yeah. And you can always tell. It's interesting. <laughs> oh, yes. Yes. Um, and it's often a much more hilarious reaction from the people who haven't seen the show before. So, definitely. I, because what I think we do as human beings is we sort of, once we, we get all this input about something that we're going to experience, something that we will experience in the future... Um, we build, you know, that model in our brain from all that input. And then when we actually have the experience, we compare the two. And because reality is often more disappointing than the creations we do in our brain, that reality just, it's just not as good as that original conception we made. So it can really make it worse for us. You know, we can have a worse experience as a result. Uh, And I think we have that with nostalgia too, except for most cases with nostalgia, we can't really go back and, and experience those things again. We can't have that first experience. We've already had it, and so now we have the model that we sort of build out of our memory, but unless in, in cases where things have been archived, like we can pull up the Magic School Bus and I can watch those episodes again. And for me, like I said before, they're not as good as I remember them being because 
I cut out all the bad parts. My my image of that show was not authentic, I guess. But Brian, we, we haven't heard from you on this. Do you have any, any comments on that question? Uh, not very much. Just the idea of, you know, someone tells you, oh, this is so great. Oh, this is so awesome. Mm-hmm. Even if they don't tell you anything, think about it. Those, those lines that they tell you just creates the expectation. And if you come in expecting something great and awesome and all this cool stuff and, all, and whatever, then it's really easy to undercut that expectation and be a little disappointed when you come away from it. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's, that's basically the point I'd like to make. I'd like to bring up, there's an interesting thing going on in chat right now yes. about people's experiences of 9-11. Yeah, yeah. Have we relayed um, that on the show before? I don't know if we've ever talked about it. We haven't really. Um, I mean, that's almost a show in itself. We're kind of getting short on time. Yeah. But it's, I mean, the, the idea of... Um, certainly the idea of this iconic moment um, in our lives that we all relate to something happening. Some, mm-hmm. every, you, know, you can ask 95, 99% of the U.S. population, where were you on 9-11? And they can, they can answer. Mm-hmm. Um, 99 of the people who were alive at that point. Anyway, so, and, and it's a very big moment. And, and people always want to share their stories. Say, this is where I was. This is what was happening. Um, this is, you know, what happened. And there are, you know, as other events like that, as, as Brian mentioned in chat, you know, when JFK was shot, mm. um, when the Challenger exploded, um, there's, there's all these sorts of moments. And, I mean, 9-11 was the most recent one, obviously, or, or as Catherine says, when Dollhouse was canceled. <laughs> there's these, these moments that, that become touchstones um, in our lives and in our memories. Mm-hmm. And, again, we, we sort of, you know, recreate... These 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 memories with our telling. Um, again, I don't want to go too far off on on the rabbit hole, although that's what we do. Um, there's an excellent graphic novel called In the Shadow of No Towers. Art Spiegelman, uh, who is most famous for when, for writing Mouse, M A U S, which I think won the Pulitzer Prize, um, which is about about his father in um, Nazi war camps. And stuff like that. And, and Mouse is an incredible series book, as is in The Shadow of No Towers, which he wrote over a series of months um, in these big, massive, you know, full-page comics that were um, that, that were recreating his experiences and just all the pain and suffering mm-hmm. he was going through, just recreating the experience for this comic and his reactions and the, the you know the, the moments thereof, um, and. It, it's really interesting because you know if he, he talks about the fact that he's writing it. He's writing you know at one page a month, basically in the comic, and that sort of becomes a thing in it when it's going on. Because at first it sort of feels like it's happening in real time. You you can read from page to page rather quickly, mm-hmm. but as it goes on, you realize that he's experiencing this, and he, he's talking about how the world is going is moving on already. You know, even when it was, it was published um, eventually in two thousand four. Mm-hmm. Um, and how how much the world had changed already in that period of time. Yeah. Well, I think we should definitely so. do a, a complete nine eleven retrospective uh, either next either this year or uh, or next year on the tenth anniversary, <laughs> which feels incredible yeah. to me that it's almost I mean, been that's, ten that's years. Something it's, amazing as well. Yeah. yeah. Um, but for now, uh, we'll go ahead and wrap up this episode of Bad Philosophy. Uh, any final comments from either of you, gentlemen, Brian? Um. I kind of wanted to mention something about 
um, memory mm-hmm. itself. And kind of just, um, since we're short on time, I'll just relay this interesting experience I had um, a month or so ago that um, I was sitting in a computer lab with a few of my friends, Matt included, um, and I, I wasn't really doing anything because it wasn't my lab, because it wasn't my uh, lab period, it was my, all my friends, but um, I was sitting there screwing around, and then at one moment, I just kind of zoned out for a few seconds, as I am wont to do, and then I realized um, everything that had happened beforehand that day felt really distant. As if I had slept since then. Yeah. So just it's just kind of the the idea of the fragility of memory itself. Um, I myself have a really really crappy memory um, as far as anything before the last you know thirty seconds goes. Uh, I get a few snapshots the further back you go, but I don't remember anything before I was in five. Yeah. I, so. I personally don't either, but um, what I've what I've been working on, and I, I still keep to it, even though I'm a few days behind, is uh, I have a journal that I write every day. You know what happens that day, and just my that my thing raw thoughts me about out it. The more I think about it, yeah. But you know what? It's it's starting to become to become very useful because I've been doing it for almost three years, and some things that I'm starting to be nostalgic about three years ago, I can go back and actually read what my thoughts were at that time, and often it's it's oh yeah. It wasn't quite that good, <laughs> so it's it's a way for me to sort of check myself when I when I tend to list off into uh, into nostalgia. Mm, but, that's useful. Uh, yeah. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much for for coming on this episode. I'm I'm glad. Oh, I, I had to... one more closing thought. It's oh short, yeah, yeah. Quote. Kevin, go for it. Go for it. Well, uh, Dimitri Martin once said that uh, digital cameras have made uh, being nostalgic so much easier. You know, you just take the picture, turn it around, and ah, oh, look at us. We are so young. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Well, uh, Brian, thank you for uh, for coming on the show at such late notice. Uh, I appreciate you doing that. I'm an adaptability. It's what I do. Yep. we we got to have a few of them in our circle. <laughs> and uh, Kevin, thank you for coming on as well. Um, we're, we're still Glad looking to forward to, uh, to getting somebody from, from there at uh, Oxford, Ohio, to uh, come on the show. Are you working on that? I'm, I'm working on it. All right. It's, it's not... It's a thing. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, for all of you uh, new people in the chat room, we've had quite a few. Um, we've got a few ways you can follow the show here. Uh, we've got a Twitter account at twitter.com slash badphilosophy. Uh, all of us have Twitter accounts. Kevin is at Kevson, K-E-V-S-A-U-N-D. Brian is uh, Ice Soldier, uh, spelled just like it sounds. And uh, I am S. Torrance, S-T-O-R-R-E-N-C-E. And uh, we've also got a store where you can uh, you will eventually be able to buy all of the products that we were once listed on there once I ever get around to doing them. Yes, I know, Kevin. I'm, I'm working on it. I'm working on it. <laughs> and uh, we do broadcast our episodes live, usually on a regular basis. This week we did a Monday instead of a Sunday, but next week we'll try to hit our normal Sunday afternoon. Yeah, we were off school today anyway. Yep. Thank you, Martin Luther King. National holiday. For that. And uh, we thank you all for listening. We hope you remember this episode fondly, and we'll see you next time on Bad Philosophy. People seem to be content. Fifty dollars paid the rent. Freaks were in a circus tent. Homes by the day. How mournfully the wind of autumn pines upon the mountainside as day declines. How mournfully the wind of autumn pines upon the mountainside as day declined. 
How mournfully the wind of autumn pines upon the mountain side as day declines. I don't know just what went wrong. Those were the days. Philosophy.com. Meaning is never absolute.